and welcome to episode 143 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Linda Hawkins, Alexis Brown, Knitting Mafia, Rosaline Riley, Or Y, Phil G, Mark Chandler, Declan Boyle, Camilla Gildenhuis, P Hill, which I recognise could also be Phil, which I could have just read wrong. So if you're Phil or P Hill, I'm sorry if I got it wrong. Andrew Maudsley, Samantha Reich, Kanae Lang, Patricia Hutchins, Steph W, Catherine Strugnell, Emma Cook, Marta Elizabeth Hines, Angelic Stain, and Daniel Hand. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I appreciate you every single day. And before we get into today's episode, I have a promo for you. And the promo for today is, what's your least favourite scary movie? What's your least favourite scary movie is a podcast where a couple of horror nerds have a weekly discussion of their least favourite parts and defences of their favourite scary movies. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, have a listen to the promo. And if you like it, make sure you like and subscribe. Have you ever had a roommate tell you that you're not allowed to pick the movie tonight because you always pick those weird indie cult slasher trash fests? Same Same here. here. Have you ever felt like you had to tell your roommate that their taste in horror movies is terrible? Same Same here. here. At What's Your Least Favorite Scary Movie Podcast, we recognize that the horror genre has a little bit of something for everybody, but everybody's not going to like every horror offering. That's why we like to talk about our least favorite aspects and most debatable opinions of our most favorite scary movies. We fight over our favorites. Check us out at What's Your Least Favorite Scary Movie wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that was What's Your Least Favorite Scary Movie. Boy, howdy, ladies and gentlemen, it has been a while. It's good to be back. I hope you're all keeping safe and well. It's weird because while you've been hearing episodes every day, I've actually not been recording. So I'm like, woo, it's good to be back. But it's actually not that different for you guys. But thank you all for listening to 31 Days of Terror. I hope you enjoyed it. I actually really enjoyed it because I I was more prepared I knew that I was going to do it, so I kind of spaced it out well. And it, yeah, and I had a much needed break, which I really appreciated. And it made me feel quite creative again. So while I've been not recording podcast episodes, I actually made a couple of YouTube videos, which was really fun. I did one unboxing and I did another one that was me carving a pumpkin and telling the story of the jack-o'-lantern. If you're interested in YouTube, if you like YouTube videos, go and check them out. The link is in the bio. I also need to say, probably because I've just gotten another email regarding it, that because it's coming up to Christmas, uh, companies are reaching out for ad reads. So as you guys know, I do my my ads are all uh, done by Acast. So I don't place the ads or I don't pick the ads. I just pick a point in the episode and they place the ads for me. And every so often I do a personal ad read. And at the moment there, there loads of companies have <laughs> been contacted and I just remembered it's because it's coming up to Christmas. So everybody's trying to get their Christmas ad campaigns in. So I will be doing a few of them. Uh, there's a couple of them that are coming up. So if you suddenly think, wow, she's doing loads of ad reads, it's it's just because it's coming up to Christmas and companies are reaching out. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite grateful for the money and the opportunity, but I just wanted to give you guys a heads up in case you're suddenly shocked by them. There's not going to be any more ads within the episodes, if that makes sense. It's just going to be the ads are going to be me ad reading rather than the integrated ads. So just to give you a heads up. 
I know that ads are a contentious issue for a lot of people, but um, I, I'm kind of seeing it as an investment so that I can do cool things. I've got some good ideas for things that I want to do. And unfortunately, these kind of things take money. So it is what it is. And the last thing that I want to say before we get into the story today is that this story terrified me. If you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen that I Instagrammed. I, I did an Instagram story about how freaked out I was. I was sitting in my bedroom writing this story and like I read the story. I knew the story. I had written notes and then I was typing out my notes into a readable format and I was still freaking out. I was convinced that somebody on my bedroom door was open. I was convinced that somebody was going to stick their head around the bedroom door. Like I got so freaked out that I had to like put the book in the freezer, Joey style. So this story, I don't know why, but it really set me on edge. And the research for this story today comes from a book called Possessed by the Devil, The Real History of the Island McGee Witches and Ireland's Only Mass Witchcraft Trial, which is by a guy called Andrew Snedden, who is an academic, but it's not written in academic language. So I often find that academic texts are really difficult to read, but this one actually isn't. And if you're interested in witch trials, the history of witchcraft and the law and criminality, particularly in Ireland and in in the UK. This book is really interesting and definitely, definitely worth a read. I also want to give a massive shout out to the Irish Spirits podcast. Uh, There, they did an episode where they talked about an element of this story and I wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for them. And uh, yeah, absolutely traumatised me. So uh, let's get into it. Possession is a complex issue to discuss, as are witch trials. Both topics are riddled with socio-economic, political and personal factors, and I vowed never to talk about demonic possession specifically again. That was until I came across this story. I was listening to the Irish Spirits podcast, and when they briefly mentioned this tale and some of the details, it made me stop in my tracks. It was a story of witches but not like any story I had heard before, and I couldn't understand how I hadn't heard it before. This story is a tale of one of the only mass witch trials to take place on the island of Ireland. And before we get into this, it's important to note that the story takes place in Ulster, in Northern Ireland, which has had an incredibly difficult and complex political and religious history. I won't be going into detail about it, because it would quite literally take all day, But let's just say that complicated is an understatement. It's also important to note that witch trials were incredibly rare in Ireland, and among the Catholic Irish in particular. Witches were accepted as a part of life rather than something to be feared, so there were no real need for witch trials in the same way as happened in other parts of Europe and the US. The case we're going to look at today, however, defied all of this, and became infamous in its outcome. At the end of the 17th century, Island McGee was a small, rural, Presbyterian Scots community of around 300 people. It was tucked away in the northeast coast of the island and was a direct line to Scotland. The people lived simple lives. They fished and made clothes and textiles. They grew crops and made furniture. Island McGee was eternally busy, with boats crossing to and from Scotland. And the sailors talked about Island McGee as a strange place. A place that was bewitched. Compasses would inexplicably stop working as soon as the coastline of Island McGee came into view. 
and the sailors never quite felt happy or comfortable there. But for the inhabitants, it was home. It was September 1710, and Anne Holtridge was at home sitting in front of her fire. Anne was an elderly widow, and she lived with her son, his wife, and their two children, and, of course, their servants. Anne was the widow of Reverend John Holtridge, and her married life was one of elevated status in the community. She was respected and relatively wealthy, and her life was comfortable and calm. Others in the community spoke highly of her, and her concerns now revolved around helping to raise her grandchildren to be upstanding members of the community too. Anne sat by the fire in a cosy haze when she felt something tap her back. She shrugged her shoulders as though shaking off cobwebs, but didn't feel the need to turn around. Until she was struck again. But this time it was harder and more definite. She was puzzled and rose from her chair to see what was causing the disturbance. She turned towards the open window, just in time to see a stone sail through and narrowly miss her head. She moved cautiously to the window, wondering what insolent strap was hurling objects through her window. And this time the stone that burst through did not miss its target. It hit her on her cheek below her left eye and Anne stepped away from the window. Anne had seen the stone coming towards her. She swore she could even see where exactly it had been propelled from. But there was no one there. In moments of terror, people can often act in ways that are unexpected. And Anne, despite her fear, calmly and quietly shut the window and retired to her bedroom. Anne readied for bed and climbed beneath the covers. The weather was warm and the window was open to let the last warm breeze of the summer permeate the house. But the open window also allowed more stones to sail through and clatter around her bedroom. Anne sat, gripping her bed covers in fright, when she felt the heavy thud of something landing at the foot of her bed. She felt the weight of it, but could see nothing. She felt it reach her feet, and her legs and torso bore its weight as it crawled up her body. Anne panicked and stumbled from her bed just as the shutters began to open and close, slamming loudly in the evening silence. Panicked, she searched the bedroom and called for the people of the household to search for an intruder, still trying to convince herself that what she was experiencing was the ruse of some young lad playing a prank. She left the bedroom briefly and returned to see that the bedclothes had been ripped from her bed and were strewn across the room. In the darkness, the noises and disturbances seemed to thrive. But when the room was illuminated, it calmed. No one had an explanation for what had happened, and eventually calm descended on the house, and Anne bravely returned to her bed. There are no records of anything else happening in the household until December 1710, when things took a bizarre and dark turn. The events of that September evening still played on Anne's mind, but no longer frightened her in the same way. She sat by the fire mending clothes with her servant girl, Margaret Spears. They were working in a comfortable silence, but it was broken by a gasp from Margaret. 
Anne looked up to see her staring, horrified, towards the kitchen area. She looked to see what Margaret was looking at, and was startled to see a boy standing just out of the shadows watching them. He looked to be about 10 to 12 years old, and was dressed in a ragged vest, a bonnet, and was wrapped in a blanket. He had one hand partially obscuring his face, Anne assumed that he was a beggar who had wandered in in search of food, but although his face was covered, she didn't recognise him, and an uneasy knot began to form in her stomach. She asked him what he wanted and the boy stood silently hand over his face, staring at them both. She asked him again, In the name of God, boy, what do you want? The boy's free arm began to jerk, and suddenly his legs animated and flailed wildly. The boy danced, a maniacal jig around the kitchen, keeping his face covered but never taking his eyes off the women who looked on in horror. He danced and danced, and then leapt from the open window and fled to the barn at the back of the house. Mary and Anne rounded up as many people as they could, and made their way to the barn to search for him. But there was nothing until they turned to see him watching them from the door of the house. Inexplicably, he had somehow made his way past them and back into the house again. And with that, he disappeared into the night. It was not until the 11th of February, 1711, that the boy would make his appearance again. Anne was reading and put her book down, and when she went to retrieve it, the book had disappeared. She didn't question it and retired to bed, assuming she would find it in the morning. The next morning, Margaret Spears went to the kitchen and came face to face with the boy. He was standing, with Anne's book in his hand and his head down so his face couldn't be seen. She panicked, and the boy jerked his fist out and smashed the pane of glass in the window. Do you want a book? This is the book the old gentlewoman wanted yesterday. I found it in the parlour next to the Bible. The Bible was too heavy for me to carry, and she shall never get it again. I can read it. The devil taught me. Margaret blessed herself in fear. Aye, bless yourself twenty times but that shall not save you. Margaret screamed and ran, grabbing the children and locking herself and them into the parlour. The boy scrabbled at the door trying to get in, telling them that he could turn into any animal he wanted. And then there was silence. Later, Anne and Margaret looked out the window to see the boy standing in the garden, holding a turkey by the neck, staring at them. He dropped the turkey and began to frenetically dig a hole in the ground, cackling as he did so, screaming that this was Anne's grave. He then leapt over a wall as though he were flying like a bird, and the house became overrun with poltergeist activity. The house was relentlessly pelted with sods of turf, the bedclothes were stripped from beds, sometimes strewn across the floor, or sometimes folded neatly on a high shelf. The clergy were called, and several people bore witness to the poltergeist activity. When they entered Anne's room, the bedclothes were arranged like a corpse, wrapped in sheets on the bed. 
Anne stubbornly continued to sleep in the bed, and she died on the 22nd of February 1711 after complaining of feeling as though she were being stabbed. While worries of witchcraft were relatively rare in Ireland, the community of Ireland McGee were primarily made up of Presbyterian Scots, and the attitude towards witches in Scotland was markedly different. Anne Holtridge was a well-respected woman in the community. Clergymen had come to the household prior to her death and saw no evidence of trickery or foul play. So, the most logical explanation for the appearance of the demon boy, the poltergeist activity, and Anne's subsequent death was witchcraft. Six days after the funeral, James Holtridge's sister and their cousin Mary Dunbar arrived to the house in order to keep James's wife company and help with the upkeep of the house after the untimely death. And the poltergeist activity continued. Clothes were scattered around rooms where they were unoccupied. Other items were smeared with clay and mud. And on one occasion, an apron was found on the parlour floor. The apron was wrapped tightly and tied in five tight knots. And there was something in the middle of it. Everyone in the house was too afraid to touch it. Everyone except for Mary Dunbar. Mary was 18 years old and she wasn't afraid of this witchcraft nonsense. She untied the knots and inside was Anne Holtrich's bonnet. The household were aghast. They knew what this was. It was a form of image magic, and someone had intentionally harmed Anne Holtridge. The poltergeist activity continued, and eventually Mary Dunbar was gripped by a mysterious illness. She was racked with stabbing pains and saw spectral women who appeared at her bedside threatening to harm her, and she uttered the first name. The name of the first witch who was tormenting her. Janet Carson. Janet Carson was immediately visited by Reverend Sinclair, who told her that she must go with him to Mary Dunbar. Remember, Mary Dunbar wasn't from the area. She didn't know any of the locals and definitely didn't know Janet Carson. Janet Carson obliged, albeit not very willingly, but she was brought into the threshold of the house and Mary Dunbar began to panic and scream and her temperature rose dramatically. Janet was brought to Mary's door where she stood outside. The door was shut. Mary screamed from inside. She's here. Janet Carson is here. No one had told Mary Dunbar that Janet Carson had been sent for and she had no knowledge that Janet Carson was outside the bedroom door. This was obviously proof enough for the clergyman. Dunbar's condition worsened. She stopped eating and her teeth would clamp shut and her tongue would curl up. She would talk about women visiting her room and threatening her life. She named Catherine McAlmond as another witch who was tormenting her and again using the same method as previously, they determined that Catherine was indeed a viable suspect. The accusations continued. Dunbar swore, she screamed and convulsed, she was unable to pray. She said that people would come to her room and threaten to shove knives down her throat. She vomited up fabric, string, feathers and pins. 
The house was pelted with turf. The boy appeared on the stairs, and though a thorough search of the house was done, no evidence of him was found again. Cats were heard screeching and mewling around the house. Disembodied voices and screams echoed throughout the rooms. The quacking of phantom ducks happened regularly, and a sulfuric smell would appear and disappear. In one incident, Mary Dunbar was reported to have levitated off the bed and into the air. Bedclothes would be ripped off beds with people in them, and any fabric that was left unattended would have multiple knots tied into it within minutes. It was even reported that a man's shirt was tied in knots while he slept in it. In all, Mary Dunbar accused eight women. She was unable to give evidence in the trial, but all eight women were found guilty and sentenced to 12 months in prison, and each was to be pilloried four times on market day. Being pilloried meant that they would be locked into the stocks in the town square and pelted with rotten fruit and vegetables four times throughout their sentence. After the trial, Dunbar had a relapse and again began to vomit up nails and pins. She accused William Seller of bewitching her and he too was arrested and found guilty of witchcraft. Interestingly, while the arrest of the alleged witches eventually calmed Mary Dunbar's symptoms, the house continued to suffer poltergeist attacks. It was pelted with turf, items would disappear and reappear, and there would be frequent knocks and bangs. The house gained a reputation of being haunted and people of the area remained wary of it. So it would seem that those responsible for bewitching Anne Holtridge and Mary Dunbar hadn't actually caused the paranormal activity that was happening in the house. There's a lot to say about this case, and a lot of theories. I think I was so taken with it because it was so unusual. It has wild similarities to the Salem witch trials, but the demonic boy and the poltergeist activity seem to be such a bizarre addition to the story. And they seem to be totally separate from the actual witch trials themselves. Is it possible that there was a genuine haunting in the house and then Mary Dunbar took the opportunity to make witchcraft allegations? The interesting part about that, though, is that Mary Dunbar wasn't from the area and had no prior knowledge of the people that she accused. She had never met them, or likely never even heard of them. And when she named them, she didn't just name them. For each person, she actually described exactly what they looked like, too and they were pretty unique-looking people. So how did she name them, and how and why did she react so violently when they were secretly brought to the house? The common denominator here is Margaret Spears, the servant girl, who seems to have witnessed pretty much all of the events and was the sole witness to a number of incidences. But even if Mary Dunbar and Margaret Spears were in cahoots somehow, and it was an elaborate ruse, and even if Margaret Spears had somehow convinced Anne Haltridge of the same, is it possible that she also orchestrated all of the poltergeist activity and never got caught? I don't know, but what I do know is that hoaxes that involve multiple people are pretty hard to keep a secret, and that hoaxes with a small amount of people can be really hard to pull off. On a serious note, it's really important that we talk about the fact that there was a very human cost to this story, and that is that nine people were imprisoned for witchcraft with no evidence other than the word of a teenage girl. 
The prison that they were sent to was famously hideous and had dire conditions and was rife with disease. There are multiple reports that when one of the women was pilloried on the market day, the crowd who had gathered to heckle and pelt her with vegetables got carried away and beat her until she lost an eye. There are no records as to what happened to these people after their prison sentences, so we don't even know if they survived prison. Catherine McAlmond, considered to be of ill fame. Janet Liston, who had a physical disability. Her daughter, Elizabeth Seller, who also had a physical disability. Janet Carson, who maintained her innocence throughout the entire ordeal. Janet Main, an irreligious woman who had a bad temper and suffered from terrible arthritis and whose face had been badly scarred from smallpox. Janet Miller, a blind woman who was also badly scarred from both a fire and smallpox. Janet Latimer, a tall, dark-haired woman with a sallow complexion. Margaret Mitchell, who was accused of being Dunbar's biggest tormentor. And finally, William Seller, who was accused and arrested after the trial. He was the husband of Janet Liston and the father of Elizabeth Seller. So that is the story of the Island McGee witches and I loved this story. I know I said it at the beginning, when I recommend books, like nobody has asked me to recommend these books. It's not like sponsored content. I don't get anything for recommending these books. But that book, Possessed by the Devil by Andrew Sneddon, is such an interesting read because not only does it cover the Island McGee case in great detail and from original sources, it actually references lots of other witchcraft cases that happened in Ireland and the UK and indeed in America too. So it's a really interesting read if you're into that sort of thing. I just don't even know where to start with this one. I think the first thing to say is that I don't believe for a second that Mary Dunbar was bewitched by anybody. And I think that in that society at the time and in Irish society in general, women were seen as second class citizens and they were very much controlled by their status, by their husband, by their family and by social construct and religious construct. So it was really important for women to be demure, to they had to pray, they had to obviously be virginal and all of those things that women had to be. And actually being possessed by witches or being obsessed by witches, as they called it, it gave women a real pretty, pretty substantial amount of power. So Mary Dunbar suddenly was sexual. She was cursing. She was getting all of this attention from the people around her. There were multiple reports of her being alone with men. And I'm not saying that she was having sexual contact with them, but that would be really unusual in itself. And suddenly she was in this position of power where she controlled the narrative around her. And I think that's also true for Margaret Spears. I think it's very likely that Margaret was feeding information to Mary Dunbar and that that's how Mary had all of this knowledge that she wouldn't ordinarily have had because suddenly Margaret is a key player in this drama. She is a main character in this narrative because she has witnessed all of this stuff happening. And the women then who were accused and and obviously the man in the form of William Seller 
all of these women were othered by society. So they were physically scarred. Some of them were born with physical disabilities. They were women who were described as being loud, as being uh, cursing, as drinking alcohol. So they were women that weren't really accepted. So I guess for the likes of Mary and Margaret Spears, they were easily accused. You could easily look at these women as being less than you because that's what you were raised to believe. And therefore, when you accuse them, it doesn't really have any consequences for your conscience, if that makes sense. So I think in that regard, like it's a really interesting story. And it seems that this happened. This was like a perfect storm that it happened. The story began with the widow of a reverend and then this 18 year old girl, Mary Dunbar, who came from a wealthy family. She was well educated and she was she had a good standing in society, then became ill and, you know, was was being bewitched by these terrible women in society. And it and it kind of it seems like this perfect storm. And it's a case of how you are treated in society is completely dictated by what your status is in society. And Mary Dunbar remained the martyr in this story. She she maintained this religious piety despite the fact that she was doing all these things that were seen as as really anti-religion at the time. So it's really interesting. But I but serious stuff aside, I mean it's it's these these awful things happened to women and men who were accused of witchcraft and which is which is horrendous and, and I don't think you can escape the real human impact of that. But I what I am gonna focus on now is um what in the actual fuck is going on with that demon boy. So seriously, that was the bit in the story where I was writing it earlier and I was so convinced that that little dickhead was going to stick his head around my bedroom door and that he was going to start dancing around my bedroom, like fully convinced. I, I was actually frightened for the first time in a really long time. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it is about him. I feel like it's just the worst part of this story aside from the you know, the the horrible impact it had on the humans in the story. But in terms of the supernatural, this is the worst part of the story. You know, Mary Dunbar can vomit pins and all that stuff all she likes. But this kid jigging around your kitchen gave me insidious vibes. That bit in, insidious with the tiptoe through the tulips and the, the kind of old man little boy is dancing in her kitchen. That's the vibes that it gave me. And I was not okay. I was not okay reading it. You know, him digging a hole in the garden, saying that he was digging Anne's grave. Like, what's that all about? And the thing, because I thought about this a lot and I thought, well, maybe he was just a beggar boy who who wasn't very well or had mental health issues. But nobody recognised him. Uh, there was no indication that he was a part of the story again afterwards, except when he was seen briefly on the stairs. It was like he announced something. And, and and Anne Holtridge experienced the initial poltergeist activity with the shutters opening and closing and her bedclothes being ripped off and all she she experienced that all on her own. And there are elements of that that could have been orchestrated by Margaret Spears, like she could have been the one to be throwing stones to the window and all that stuff. But the shutters opening and closing on their own when she went upstairs to bed, things like that, I just, I don't know. Is the house haunted? And the witch, the the kind of the witch trial element came afterwards as an afterthought. I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing is bonkers and I loved it but hated the little boy. So if you've got any um, 
ideas about what you think happened in this story, whether it was a case of a haunting and then the witch trial was just subsequent to that and completely an aside and an opportunity taken by young girls to behave in a certain way, then let me know. Let me know. I feel like I want to go to Isla McGee and see if the house is still there. And if it is still there, like, what what do people think about it now? Like, do they think it's haunted? Is it one of those houses where people are like, oh, stay away from that house. There's a boy that's just dancing around in there. Why is dancing so frightening? I think it's the uncanny valley nature of it that somebody dancing is obviously a really joyous thing, but can be really frightening if it's done out of context. I hate this so much. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to be freaked out tonight going to bed. For the first time in ages, I'm going to be freaked out tonight going to bed. Brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in a spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next week. <laughs>